Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. Lots to get to this morning. We have the very latest in terms of the SVB bailout, including comments from President Biden and exactly what happened in the markets yesterday. So we'll break all of that down for you. We also have David Dayen on uh, to talk about his analysis of everything that is happening. Incredibly sharp uh, financial observer. So excited to speak with him. Uh, We have some news regarding China, both brokering a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, but also uh, speaking with Zelensky. Zelensky, and of course, with Russia and Putin. This is a huge, huge deal. So we'll break all of that down for you. Uh, Interesting clip coming out of The View and interesting reporting coming out of the Democratic Party. They are very upset. They want people to shut up about the problems they have with Kamala Harris. Um, They are getting very concerned because you may not know this, but Joe Biden is 80 years old and they're very concerned that, you know, if people don't love Kamala Harris and they realize that she's number two on the ticket and she's a heartbeat away from the presidency, that could be a problem for them. Also have some polling regarding lab leak. Public did not by the uh, media spin job on that particular issue. So all of that, plus we have Matt Taibbi in the show today too. Yeah, Matt Taibbi, so-called journalist, will be responding to Congress. And we'll actually <laughs> talk about the content of the Twitter file, something that you Imagine missed, that. unfortunately, in those hearings. Uh, just a reminder, we're very happy to announce that we have video for all of our premium subscribers on Spotify. So if you go ahead and become a premium subscriber today, you can both toggle between audio and video and actually watch it fully there. People have been absolutely loving it. I know there were some glitches on Spotify's end. 
yesterday, but we got them uh, all resolved and we should be 100% good to go from here on out. And as always, existing premium subs, uh, I had the instructions yesterday, just lock into your, uh, log into your Supercast account, click the Spotify icon, and you can update it. You know, the more I think about it, I think it's a great viewing experience for so many of our audience because with YouTube, the way that we send our link is we email it to you. This auto updates in your right. feed. You can just right. check it every single You don't have to click through day. anything. Yeah, it's just you really for don't. you. And so, yeah. yeah, for the premium subs, people who've been signing up for that, thank you, thank you so much. It really means the world. And you guys get to now take advantage, our large Spotify audience, of the new studio and everything that we're going to be showing everyone. So it's going to look yep. even extra beautiful on that phone screen. And if you are not yes. a premium subscriber, consider going to breakingpoints.com and you can sign up there and connect your thing to Spotify and you'll be good to go. We will make it all good to go. Let's start with the Silicon Valley bailout. So President Biden speaking yesterday to try and calm the markets and assure everybody everything is just A-OK despite the bailout. Here's what he had to say. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. So uh, anytime a politician has to say the banking system is sound and it's safe, you should probably start to ask some questions about what the hell is going on. Unfortunately, Wall Street did not uh, take the president's warning to heed. Let's go and put this up there on the screen. Absolutely stunning day in the Treasury markets. The two-year Treasury yield posted the biggest three-day decline since the aftermath of the 1987 stock crash. CNBC writing here, investors swarmed into government bonds on Monday after the collapse of the bank, sending Treasury yields tumbling. The yield was last trading at 4 percent down 59 basis points the largest three-day crash since october of 22nd october 22nd 1987 when it fell a comparable 117 basis points otherwise known as black monday so one of the worst days in stock market history but you know there's an irony here because part of how silicon valley bank got into trouble is they were holding all of these (laughs) long-term treasuries and now with this huge market movement this may have been enough to pump up the value of their long-term treasuries and make them solvent. But anyway, so that will be helpful to other banks that are potentially in uh, similar situations. But yeah, that's what we're looking at. You can almost not make it up. The major point being, though, that this was a absolute bloodbath of a day for everybody in the regional bank sector. Uh, We had the first Republic CEO go on CNBC to tell everyone that, no, it's actually fine. Many depositors aren't leaving, despite the fact that their stock got absolutely massively hammered. Here's what he had to say. Just spoke with with Jim Herbert. He's the CEO of First Republic, and I asked him what are the outflows today, and he said it's business as usual. Now remember, I'm speaking to the CEO. That does not mean Jim Cramer says it's business as usual. That there are not that much, that there are that not that many liquidations above 250 million, pretty 250,000. It's pretty much uh, the same as you would expect. Uh, I the J.P. Morgan uh, funding is working, trying to make it so this situation is stable. 
All right, so despite his uh, assurances, Crystal, let's put this up there on the screen. First Republic Bank dropped 60% in its stock value in a single day, leading the decline in bank stocks despite the government backstop of SVB. They had to raise its unused liquidity to $70 billion, again, then being able to tap the new Fed facility. And I think that is where we need to focus some of our analysis more of the bailout, right? Because it's important, and we're going to do an entire thing on on the Federal Reserve, but to tie these two things together, even with the extraordinary actions of covering, effectively setting the precedent that from here on out, all banks are too big to fail. All banks' deposits are now effectively covered by the FDIC. We're going to see how much more these banks have to pay for the FDIC. And we're also going to see how much more customer fees all of us mm-hmm. are going to have to pay Get in order to make. Yeah, it's, it, it, once again, if you think those banks are the ones absorbing the cost, then you're an idiot. So somebody's going to pay for it. It's almost certainly going to be us uh, in addition to all of these taxpayer, you know, it may not be actual appropriated funds, but let's just say like having the Federal Reserve backstop all the treasuries on the balance sheet of every bank in the United States, that's just an extraordinary gift. I mean, basically imagine if you had a loss on your balance sheet that was declining and then the government just came in and said, we'll redeem it though at the original value of that. That'd be real nice for any of us in the small business world. Right. But if you happen to own a gas station or a restaurant, uh, you're screwed. If you're open to own a bank, oh, you're all good now. If if we tried to do that, that would be accounting fraud. Yeah, it's fraud. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it would be accounting broad. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remind everyone of just what is entailed in this bailout. Effectively, because they are uh, backing up 100% of the deposits, both at SVB and at Signature Bank, de facto, that means every deposit in the entire country, insured or uninsured, is backstopped by the FDIC. Um, and in addition, and this is perhaps the even more significant gift, is they're creating a new lending facility at the Fed so that banks can borrow against collateral, including some of that collateral that has declined in value. They're just going to pretend that it didn't decline in value. So So huge change to the banking system without, and this is, in a way, makes it worse than 2008. In 2008, at least there was some pain extracted from industry in terms of Dodd-Frank financial reform. Now, I think we're learning in real time that Dodd-Frank didn't go far enough, and especially now that we see some of those regulations being rolled back. But there was at least new guardrails put on the banking sector. Here, they're getting a free lunch and they're not being asked for anything. I mean, I don't hear Biden really, you know, calling for Congress to put anything on his desk. Of course, there are some members, Elizabeth Warren in particular, who are calling for a rollback of that deregulation that happened under the Trump administration. But will that get anywhere when you have a Republican House? Um, I, you know, I'm skeptical at best that anything will happen on the regulatory front. So they're getting this bailout. They're getting a massive gift from the U.S. federal government, and they're not being asked for anything in exchange. So I think it's really important to remember that. Let me also say, in terms of um, Biden, there's some new reporting this morning. You know, I don't know if this is really true or not, but the reporting suggests that he really had to have his arm twisted in order to do this bailout because he didn't like the 2008 bailouts, whatever. And at the beginning of the weekend, he really didn't want to go down this path. But effectively, like, you know, Treasurer Janet Yellen and um, Powell kind of talked him into going forward with this bailout. So you can see in his comments, he goes to great pains to position this as like a populist play, oh, we're just backstopping small businesses, et cetera. 
But ultimately, they're lying about what this really means. They're lying about the extent of it. They're lying about the idea that it's not a bailout. All of this is very, very misleading in terms of what has actually just happened. So our guest yesterday, Matthew Zeitlin, actually had a great point. And I'll read his tweet here. Quote, the no taxpayer money just gives you insight into how legalistic and literal that the government now is. The thrust of Dodd-Frank and just the general vibe was that what happened in 08 should be avoided after the bailouts. So the feds are very carefully just not doing literal 2008 all over again. You can't actually pass a law that says don't do anything wacky with banks again. So the feds will stay within the lines that Congress has drawn. But what Congress has drawn is by giving this extraordinary authority to the FDIC and also with the Federal Reserve and its expanded powers to basically say, oh, well, it's not an appropriated congressionally passed uh, taxpayer funded bailout. Yet the Fed is backstopping the balance sheet of every single bank in the entire United States. And oh, also we just set an insane and extraordinary standard that all deposits in the U.S. are now covered by the FDIC. Hmm. Uh, once again, the FDIC has only, what, $100 billion or so in it. There's $9 trillion worth of uh, banks that are not, or bank deposits that are not insured currently by FDIC. So who is going to make up the difference? And whose full faith and credit and legitimacy is backing it? The taxpayer. So much of this is just, you know, as you said. It's semantic. If we tried to do it, it'd be, ta- it'd be accounting fraud. When they get to do it, it's because the feds are backing them. And if the feds are backing you, then it's a You know, I'm rereading, I've said yesterday, uh, too big to fail. And one thing that comes through is many of these deals that happened at the time, you know, J.P. Morgan or somebody buying Bear Stearns or Barclays buying parts of Lehman, all of this, it was all orchestrated by Hank Paulson and by Timothy Geithner. Now, you can maybe say it's not a bailout because one bank bought another. They never would have done it if the Treasury Secretary wasn't like, hey, you're going to buy this bank. And you're going to do it because I'm telling you to do so. In many explicit cases in the private conversations, the bankers were saying, I would never do this if Hank did not tell me to do it. So <laughs> did not that's called a bailout. Okay? Like if, the Treasury, yeah. if the Treasury Secretary is basically ordering the senior most people in the financial system to take actions they would not have otherwise done by giving them the legitimacy, the backing of the federal government, well, that is in one sense a taxpayer-funded initiative because one of the ways that we would do it was by guaranteeing guaranteeing their loans or by giving them the legitimacy or saying, oh, well, we'll give you, uh, you know, preferential financing on this part of the deal. Of course, that is backed by the government, which by definition is, you know, the representation of the people and of all of the taxpayers. So, so much of what we're doing here is just semantic games and it's driving me crazy Yeah, the way and, they want to wiggle out of this. Yeah, I agree. And yeah. the way that they are gaslighting the public means that they, they're trying to tamp down any sort of a populist revolt yes. in reaction to this, which look, politically, I understand why they would want to do that. Um, But because they are trying to tamp down that public pressure, it makes it much less likely that the bank reform that really needs to happen, obviously after this whole debacle really needs to happen, is less likely to actually come to pass. So that's the unfortunate situation that we're in now. I mean, they have, with these um, effectively three actions that they've taken, they have really transformed how banks are going to see themselves, how banks are going to see, like, the, you know, view what type of risky behavior they can engage in. They have sort of revolutionized the banking sector in a really bad way without putting attendant guardrails on the industry. So it is kind of a worst of all worlds situation. Now, in terms of the market moves yesterday, so a lot of regional bank stocks, as you pointed out, Sagar, you know, like fell off a cliff. But 
there's no indication that the, the big fear that, you know, there was a lot of Silicon Valley carping about and fear mongering about over the weekend was, oh, there's going to be this huge flight of depositors from the regional banks to the big players. That's why we have to do this. We have to forestall any sort of a bank run. And it's possible that the actions they took worked. And so, you know, they cut off the potential of a bank run. That may be the case. But it is worth noting that even as you had an what they described as an investor bank run, so investors fleeing these stocks, you didn't actually see any movement really that we know about, massive movement in terms of depositors pulling their funds and moving them to the big bank. So again, maybe that's because the actions worked, or maybe it's because a bank run was not actually going to happen here and um, people in Silicon Valley were just looking out for their own interests. There ain't no way to know, uh, but what we do know is that an extraordinary line has been passed and now we're just living in another new bank reality right. just like we were um, in 2009 after the 08 bailout. So let's go to the second part here. This is important as well and that we've been trying to make people understand the extent of covering just the deposits is in some sense the least, uh, like the least objectionable part of the bailout. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. So the given the new Federal Reserve bailout, the big four U.S. banks have now gotten a 200 $10 billion federal bailout. How? Because the Fed's new facility allows banks to borrow against the negative collateral value that is shown here at par instead of at market value. So once again, they are able to borrow at par on their securities and assets instead of the losses that they rightfully should take on assets that they bought purely in order to increase the amount of uh, capital to cover their deposits. That is a bailout. There's no other way to describe it. Effectively, the Federal Reserve is saying you do not have to account your business in the same way that every other business on the planet has to yeah. because you're too big to fail. Yes. That is the, I mean, the greatest gift once, you know, that we can try and expound is when the feds and specifically the Federal Reserve here are allowing these accounting gimmicks to play, take place at all of these banks, they now operate fundamentally different than any other business in the entire country with a massive advantage and gift. And there is no current there is no current regulation, there is no current law crystal that they cannot use this to this tremendous advantage and they can't pay themselves out bonuses tomorrow. They could pay themselves out bonuses in three months. The ability to survive is everything in business. So if you survive this and then you start making tremendous profits, you think they're going to pay any of this back? Like you think they're going to pay some sort of fine or anything? If anything, they're just going to pass on the FDIC's, FDIC fees to all of us customers, and then they will increase even more of their profits, and they're going to either pay dividends out or they're going to buy back their own shares, or they're going to pay themselves out big bonuses. Yeah. This is bullshit, like, when you really think about it. Yeah, that's that's yeah. right. I mean, I think Zeitlin said it really well yesterday when he said, sometimes you can get lost in the semantics of, like, okay, what's the taxpayer dollar? Where mm -hmm. are they going? Who's funding it, et cetera? The bottom line is a gigantic benefit and gift has been given to the entire banking sector in a way that, you know, we never see the machinery of the federal government jump to when it's the interest of working class people that are on the line. So not only do you have the speed of action, not only do you have a sort of shock and awe, overwhelming force of the action, but you have all of the machinery in place to make sure that these wealthy, well-connected individuals 
are always taken care of at a moment's notice. And I think that is just incredibly clear from uh, what we've seen and the speed with which we've seen it. You know, if there was even a whiff of a potential problem Mm -hmm. for these individuals, Biden was convinced over one weekend to take dramatic action, turning the banking system really on its head and, again, not demanding a single thing in return. So that is the bottom line here. The other piece of this, and let's go ahead and put this next piece up on the screen from the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) All right, so the Fed had been engaging in this policy of uh, monetary policy tightening, hiking interest rates with the stated explicit goal of of crushing wages and spiking unemployment, okay? Now, let's keep in mind that the actions that the Fed and the president just took were in the opposite direction when it was the jobs of a certain group of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and their employees. Well, then they had to make sure there were no job losses. But the overall policy remains, we need higher unemployment and we need lower wages. Okay, so they are getting ready to decide what they're going to do in terms of a rate hike, rate decrease, or keeping things the same. The Wall Street Journal headline here is, Fed's magical accounting might save banks, but doom rate increases. Um, They go on to say there are plenty of lessons for investors in the collapse of SVB and other banks. So now there's a big question about, okay, well, so this entire bailout is, you know, goes in the direction of monetary easing. So it's the polar opposite direction of what the Fed has been trying to do in terms of um, getting inflation under control, although we've discussed on this program ad nauseum how the Fed hiking rates is an incredibly blunt tool that doesn't have any guarantee of success at even getting inflation under control. is going to be very painful for a lot of people, especially if they spark a recession. And lo and behold, thus far, their moves have not actually gotten inflation under control. And, you know, we still stand that risk of a recession. So what are they going to do now? The analysis seems to be kind of all over the map. I've seen some people even saying, oh, maybe they're going to actually um, not only stay in the same place in terms of rates, maybe they're actually going to go in the polar opposite direction because they're worried about banks and their um, financial soundness. Maybe they're going to continue on the path of rate hikes, even though this is like directly at odds with these other actions that they just took. Maybe they're going to just keep rates where they are right now and see what happens. So it's really pretty up in the air now of what the Fed is going to decide to do. Yeah, I think you're right, Crystal. And that was, let's go ahead and put this one up on the screen. Right now, the market still expects the Fed to go through with rate hikes. But the fact that the question is even in their minds over here also shows you how fundamentally unfair the system is. Whenever the rates start to go up and and threaten the balance sheets of the big banks and the too big to fail institutions, then we're allowed to rethink the policy. Right. Whenever small businesses like ours and across the country are getting crushed by rate increases and can't take any loans if they want them, when all of the viewers of our show are literally unable to buy a house because the mortgage rates are at the worst part time that they've been in like 50 years, when you consider both the price increase, the housing market is a disaster, whenever everything is slowing, unemployment uh, is happening, or at least is happening to the extent that they want it to, or you know, even increasing rates because they want the jobs numbers to go down. It's not a question. This is the only thing that makes them pause and think, yeah, maybe, maybe that we won't increase the rates. I think you're right, though. I mean, I I just don't know. I I do feel like they're probably going to increase just simply because of what the jobs numbers were yesterday. But they may not go as far as they originally were going to um, before this crisis began. Maybe they did 25 basis points instead of 50 basis points. That seems to be what the market is kind of pricing in. But, you know, I think the the important point is the one you made, Sagar, that, 
you know, they are actively trying to cause unemployment nationwide with their policy. But then when it's this one group that's well-connected and has some very loud and influential voices to advocate for their interests, then they do a U-turn and go in the polar opposite direction. Yeah, there you go. So, look, system is rigged. I guess that's a common theme of the show. Yeah. Uh, Trying to explain exactly. I know it can get complicated with the jargon and all of that, but just take away the very basic lesson. It's like they get special tools and accounting that are granted for them that you no other business on the planet gets and specifically no other workers' concern is ever even factored Correct. into their minds. And, and that's the basics of it. And yeah. we're not asking them for anything yeah. in return. Nothing. We're not tight. Must at be least nice. As of now, not tightening, regulate, nothing. Nothing. They just get a bailout and that's yeah. that. Yep. All right, guys, um, we want to dig in deeper on this same topic with David Dayan. He's, of course, executive editor of the American Prospect, fantastic financial analyst and journalist. Um, want to get his take on everything that's happening, so let's get to it. David, great to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, so um, let's go ahead and put David's piece up on the screen here, what he has been writing. Uh, phenomenal work, as always. The headline is the Silicon Valley Bank bailout did not need to happen. The debate over protecting all deposits in a blink looks past the incompetence that got us here. Um, so I would love you to break down the thesis of this piece, but also just give us your reaction to the fairly extraordinary measures that were taken by the U.S. government. Yeah, so this is absolutely uh, a bailout. It's a bailout of irresponsible banks that uh, did not uh, prepare themselves for uh, what has now been a year of interest rate changes and uh, did not take the steps necessary to protect the severe risk of short-term deposits uh, in their their facilities. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank has essentially no regular customers. It's uh, a bank that serves founders and startup companies. Uh, uh, The normal bank maybe has 40, 50% of deposits over the FDIC's $250,000 limit. Silicon Valley Bank had 95%. So uh, you have to have some stability in in how you're using those deposits uh, because you have this a continuous risk of deposits fleeing and you not having enough money to take care of it. And they put all their money into long dated government bonds, which are generally fairly safe, but have interest rate risk. And the interest rate risk is that if you have to pull out that money right away and interest rates are high, uh, they're going to be worth less than the face value. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and uh, if if Silicon Valley Bank was in a regime that was tightly regulated um, in in kind of the experience of, of larger banks, and of course, Silicon Valley Bank was the 16th largest bank by assets in the United States, but it did not have the same kind of stringent regulation, particularly around liquidity, which was the entire problem here, um, as big banks, because... SVB uh, lobbied for and received in 2018 essentially a deregulation of uh, its its bank and similar banks of its size. So, David, can you just explain uh, maybe even further here about the existing regulations and about the way that this would have gone down without the extraordinary uh, interference here by the U.S. government? Right. So when we had Dodd-Frank uh, in, in 20, uh, 2010, 
that created a regime where all banks above 50 billion were uh, in assets were uh, subject to enhanced regulatory standards. Uh, that means higher liquidity and capital requirements. In other words, absorbing losses, exactly the kind of losses that we saw here with uh, respect to uh, these, these outflow of deposits. Um, and, uh, you know, bigger stress tests, uh, more stress tests, uh, just tighter supervision generally. Um, in 2018, Republicans uh, decided that they wanted to uh, weaken these regulations. They did it in the name of relief for community banks. Uh, and uh, they, they smuggled in uh, a change to the enhanced regulatory standards from 50 billion to 250 billion. Um, mm -hmm. These are, uh, and I, I, in a very exhaustive piece in The Intercept, we called these the stadium banks. This is what uh, some uh, individuals in Congress were calling them. Uh, that means that these are, this is a gift for banks that aren't big enough to be J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank of America, but uh, they are big enough to have uh, naming rights to a stadium. Uh, you know, BB&T Field, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, anyway. Um, so uh, not only were Republicans interested in this, because if it was just Republicans, this would die in the Senate, but several Democrats uh, on the Senate Banking Committee uh, decided to join in on this process. They went around uh, Sherrod Brown, who was the chair of the Senate Banking or the ranking Democrat at that time on the Senate Banking Committee. Uh, I'll give you the names. It was uh, uh, Joe Donnelly and Heidi Heitkamp, who are no longer there and are both lobbyists now, and John Tester and Mark Warner. And mm. those four, in conjunction with Republicans on the Senate Banking Committee, wrote this bill. Um, and uh, the key section did what I just talked about, which was the enhanced regulatory standards. Uh, moving that threshold from 50 billion to 250 billion. The second thing that it did is it changed one word in uh, uh, the U.S. code. It changed the word from may to shall, and this was called the tailoring rule. And this uh, changing it from may to shall uh, made it so that the Federal Reserve, instead of having the option to tailor rules to the size of particular banks, said that they shall do that. In other words, a directive to tailor the rules. And this changed those rules even further. It gave the green light to the Federal Reserve to deregulate and weaken standards even more. And they took that opportunity and did it in 2019. Lael Brainerd, uh, who is now the head of the National Economic Council, was the only dissenting vote. And she said, this is going to increase risk this is going to uh, uh, create the uh, more propensity for potential bank runs and financial crises. Uh, of course, Senator Elizabeth Warren, when this bill uh, passed, said the same thing. Katie Porter, who was not yet in Congress, told me this bill should get zero votes at the time. Uh, it, it was very clear to people paying attention that if you deregulate this part of the sector, and particularly if you change that threshold from 50 to 2 billion, uh, 250 billion, the, the, the limit to how much growth a bank is going to want to do suddenly jumps up and uh, it's going to create a lot of consolidation in the system. That's exactly mm. what happened. Uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank and many other 
uh, medium-sized, large regional banks started eating up all the other community banks to get oh, bigger. That's and, a great point. Uh, and uh, this created this very consolidation that the bill was supposed to prevent because the bill is, was allegedly because it was uh, supposed to be about saving community banks. It actually ate community banks. Mm. It, 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 it uh, created the situation where these large regionals got way big, way quick. And yeah. And couldn't handle the risks that came along with getting big. Well, and there's a great irony in the actions that the government just took because uh, at that time, you know, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank was effectively lobbying Congress to say, we are not a uh, systemic risk to the system. And then what has happened with this bailout is that they have deemed them a systemic risk to the system and not just Silicon Valley Bank, but also Signature Bank, which is a much smaller player um, with a sort of crypto aligned and <laughs> disgustingly with Barney Frank, who wrote the Dodd-Frank regulations and you know famously sits on the board then as in his position now as a board member of this bank, actually went and lobbied to roll back the very regulations that he helped to craft. Yeah. He, in 2018, he was right on the front lines lobbying for this uh, on behalf of Signature Bank, you might say. Uh, and of course, they grew uh, big time in size. They were in this between 50 and 250 uh, position, and then they failed. Yeah. Um, you're absolutely right. They had to uh, deem a systemic risk. That was the only way to get around the rules in Dodd-Frank, which said we're not going to do bailouts anymore. The only way that they could do it is by the FDIC triggering a systemic risk exemption. And so the very banks who said, don't worry about us, uh, under $250 billion, not a systemic risk. Meanwhile, we knew, you know, IndyMac was under $250 billion. Continental Illinois in the 1980s was under $250 billion. Uh, the, these types of banks have, have historically triggered systemic risk. But, uh, uh, you know, the Democrats and Republicans who aligned on this bill uh, bought what Silicon Valley Bank and these other banks were selling, which is we're not a risk, let us grow. Uh, they did it. They deregulated. These banks grew. And uh, uh, what do you know? They uh, they completely fail. David, let me just play devil's advocate for a moment, because I think there are a lot of, you know, uh, good faith people who are making the argument like, look, these depositors in Silicon Valley Bank, they didn't do anything wrong. It's not their fault that the bank was taking on this risk. It's unreasonable to expect individual depositors to be bet vetting the practices of the bank when even the Fed was caught unawares that there was risky behavior going on here. And furthermore, if you don't backstop the depositors and perhaps take some of the other actions that were taken in terms of creating this new lending uh, facility and allowing them to keep their collateral at the original value that they uh, purchased it at. Without that, we could have a bank run because now you're going to have all these depositors flee the quote unquote stadium banks and go to the JP Morgan chases of the world. So you're effectively just going to end up with, you know, not only a bank run and financial chaos, but you're also going to make the bigger banks even bigger. What do you say to uh, those who, who believe that and, and have been um, arguing in that direction? These depositors did do something wrong. Roku had $487 million in one bank. That is the dumbest risk management I've ever heard in my entire life. Uh, there are very simple steps that companies take to ensure that their money which is uh, invariably sometimes over $250,000, uh, 
is protected from all, uh, uh, you know, bank risk and right. limitations like that. It's on the bank to, to make those options available. And those options were available at Silicon Valley Bank, although they were uh, somewhat hidden and, and not used very often. But mm -hmm. there's things like insured cash suite, there's cash management accounts uh, that essentially cuts up your, your amount of money that you have in your bank and puts them in a reciprocal fashion in hundreds of banks uh, that are in this network and it makes sure that, uh, you know, if there's a failure in one, you can still get access to your money. It's a simple risk management strategy that practically every company on earth, except the big brains in Silicon Valley, use. And you have people like Jason Kalkanis out there now saying, oh, we're going to get so much innovation because now we're going to come up with digital strategies to, to uh, ex you know, uh, get around the $250,000 limit. That's like Uber reinventing the bus. These guys are <laughs> idiots. They're complete morons at, that, that think that nobody else is as smart as them to come up with these strategies. In fact, these are extremely common strategies used for decades. Right. And when they realized they didn't have it, then they started this digital bank run, which then uh, uh, had this threat to, to move to other parts of the system and uh, led to this extraordinary uh, uh, Federal Reserve uh, bailout. Uh, that is going on with not just it's it, you're right to point out it's not just that they're essentially making infinite deposit insurance for every every bank in America and every depositor in America. It's this thing about opening this this lending facility that uh, says, give us all your assets, even if they've gone down in value, we'll pretend that they're worth what they used to be worth. That right. is, again, all kinds of risk management in banks that we've seen for decades. And uh, it's going to create uh, massive amounts of risk to pool. Uh, this yeah. is a bigger problem uh, uh, than, than, than what was actually dealt with here. And yeah. it's, it's, it's gonna get much worse. Yeah, well I think that's really well said. I mean, because the Fed has basically said to the entire banking sector, don't worry about risk. American people you. will cover it. We'll take on the risk. You just keep making your profits. Um, David, thank you so much for breaking all of this down for Great us. Great job, man. Thank really you. appreciate it. Extraordinary news on the international scene at the same time. So President Xi and China making major diplomatic overtures across the world that are both upstaging the U.S. and really just showing us increasingly on a day-by-day -day slow basis of really what a return to multipolarity is going to look like. So let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. Xi Jinping is now announcing a plan to speak with President Zelensky for the first time since the Ukraine war broke out. This is going to follow the Chinese leaders meeting with Russia's President Vladimir Putin next week, making China one of the major interlocutors currently between Moscow and between Ukraine. This was previously a role that France had taken. There were some indications that maybe the Indians would step in and do it. But with China stepping in, it is an extraordinary moment for a couple of reasons. Number one, almost nobody actually maintains relations with both countries. But two, this would be a huge step in their in Beijing's basically current 
want to be the international peacemaker. Peacemaker. We're going to talk a little bit about the peace deal that they've brokered with Iran and Saudi Arabia, or at least rest- restoring of diplomatic relations, not necessarily a peace deal. But to think about what level of legitimacy that would bestow upon them on the world stage yeah. is actually extraordinary. And there was a really interesting uh, moment that happened yesterday. There's an Atlantic Council fellow. For those who don't know, uh, the Atlantic Council is kind of like as as neo-lib as it gets, uh, protecting the Atlantic it's like Alliance. The heartbeat of the blob. It is the heartbeat of the blob. That's a great way <laughs> to put it. Of the as foreign policy establishment thinking goes, like that's where it is. And it was a scholar there who is very much of that mind, and she's like, "Hey, I'm in India. I don't think we in the West." really understand how little the European and U.S. rhetoric about autocracy versus uh, democracy is not landing at all in South Asia. Mm. She was like, here in India, they don't want to hear it. They don't care. A huge portion of the global South that we've talked to, spanning from Lula to people in Japan, South Korea, and elsewhere are like, I don't want to hear all of your talk about democracy. Right. And they, you know, even the Indians were like, listen, we're not saying that what happened is good, but you know, you guys expanded NATO and these things. So the point is that they're willing to look at both sides very equally. They see it very differently. And Remember we covered that that yes. poll that showed that basically only the U.S., right. even Europe wasn't really buying the, like, it's democracy mm-hmm. versus authoritarianism. Even they felt like, okay, this is more about national interest. And uh, certainly the rest of the world does not view this conflict in the way it has been framed to right. the American people. China is exploiting that void by basically embracing a real politic view of everything. And this is to their benefit for a variety of reasons. Number one, of course, they are currently on the verge of making a decision on whether to send lethal aid to Russia, basically to help them w- fight the war in Ukraine. It would be a major uh, development for them to do so. It would definitely open up and change a lot of the Russian supply problems that they have. And it certainly would have some impact there on the battlefield. But they're doing it at the same time that they are also have been facing international condemnation. Remember also that China's approval rating worldwide dropped dramatically because of COVID. Everybody blames them for COVID rightfully, I think, in my opinion. We'll cover our poll later in the show about it. Everyone thinks it. Basically, a supermajority of Americans are like, yeah, it's a lap leak. Uh, and it, it, that's, in America, that's probably low compared to the rest of the world. We're like, obviously, it's a lap <laughs> leak. So they need to try and shore up their international support. Second, they want to define the world in their way. Why? Because then if there was ever a major showdown over Taiwan, they would have a lot more international capital built up in the diplomatic system than they currently have right now. So look, the call has not yet been announced. I do think it will happen for a very specific reason. Let's go and put this next one up there on the screen. It's because the Chinese proposed a peace plan about Uh, A couple of weeks ago, on the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, effectively the plan would just freeze the battlefield where it is right now with some negotiation over parts of eastern Ukraine and would bring the two sides together. The Chinese, you know, they like to frame everything in terms of mutual respect, and by that really they mean their definitions, but they say, quote, all parties must stay rational and exercise restraint, avoid fanning the flames, aggravating tensions, prevent the crisis from deteriorating further or spiraling out of control. They want to 
to step in and cast themselves as the peacemaker. What was also very important is, despite the fact that Zelensky, anytime somebody like Elon is like, hey, I'm not so sure about this, maybe we should have a peace plan, he actually responded very positively to it. You know why? Because he knows that if he were to reject it out of hand completely, the Chinese would be like, okay, well, if you're not even willing to negotiate at all, then we're just gonna send weapons to Russia and then you guys will be defeated holistically on the battlefield. So the point is, is that they actually put Zelensky in a bind and have gotten him to a point where he has said, I am willing to discuss this with the Chinese. So he opened up that ground saying, I want to speak to President Xi. A lot of people in the West were like, Zelensky's calling Xi's bluff. I'm like, is it a bluff? Because maybe that they actually do want to broker this. It would be the diplomatic coup of the century yeah. if they were to bring this conflict to an end. It would upstage and humiliate the United States. It would make a Chinese takeover of Taiwan 10 times more possible because just in terms of the legitimacy, in terms of the allies that they would get through that, in terms of the way that Asia would start to look at the conflict. And let's be honest, global public opinion-wise, they would be striking at the core of what most people want. Not necessarily here in America, although increasingly I think more so, yeah. but specifically all across the world of people who are like, I'm not buying this U.S. framing of this conflict. I think it's very positive if China wants to play the role of peacemaker. God knows that somebody needs to, and the U.S. has absolutely abdicated their ability and desire to play that role um, from early in this conflict when they decided that our interests were in continuing the war in order to be a check on Russia, rather than trying to push the parties to the negotiating table to bring the conflict to a close and end what has been an absolutely devastating war, certainly first and foremost for the Ukrainian people but also for the world in terms of energy prices, in terms of food prices, in terms of global instability. So I absolutely welcome this role for China. I hope they are approaching it in good faith. I think the fact that there is any receptiveness on the side of Zelensky is incredibly noteworthy because it was interesting, Sagar, when the peace plan from China, quote unquote, mm -hmm. was first introduced, announced, et cetera, um, the official response from Ukraine was very dismissive. But when Zelensky himself was asked about it, yeah. he was actually much more receptive. Now, NATO, on the other hand, is uh, you know not impressed. They say China doesn't have much credibility. This is NATO. NATO Secretary General. China doesn't have much credibility because they've not been able to condemn the illegal invasion of Ukraine. But in fact, the China is on the verge, potentially, of taking some more aggressive and clear-cut steps to back Russia. At that point, their ability to play any sort of peacemaker role is going to be dead. But they haven't done that yet. And in fact, the, the fact that they have kept uh, a good relationship with Russia and haven't totally killed their relationship with Ukraine actually enables them to occupy this space. So I think it's actually kind of the polar opposite of what the NATO Secretary General has um, said here. Yes, it was an illegal invasion of Ukraine. We're not afraid of saying that here. But the fact that China hasn't said that and hasn't really pissed off the Russians in that way actually gives them a chance to be useful here. It's important to keep in mind as well, uh, prior to the war, China was actually Ukraine's biggest trading partner. Yeah. So it's not like there isn't any relationship there. There are deep and longstanding important ties, economic ties, which also underscores that the way China has approached, approached their um, foreign policy or their approach to imperialism, you might say, has been less through, we're going to put bases everywhere, we're going to enforce it with military might, and more through economic 
ties and cooperation and using those ties as a form of um, leverage and coercion. So, you know, certainly they have a lot that they can work with here in terms of those ties with Ukraine and obviously with Russia. And the reason why this is part of a bigger campaign is let's put this next one up there on the screen. Uh, our friend Trita Parsi talking about how Saudi and Iran normalization of relations is a huge deal, not just because of the positive repercussions that it could have in the region from Lebanon to Yemen, but because it was mediated by China and not the United States. As he lays out here, Saudi and Iran tensions have had ups and downs in the last 40 years, but this is the four, first time they've ever agreed to lower the temperature through Chinese mediation. By not taking sides, China emerged as a player that can resolve disputes rather than merely just sell weapons. Unfortunately, the U.S. has adopted an approach to the region that has disabled it from being a credible mediator. Too often, Washington will just take sides in conflicts, become a co-belligerent, as in Yemen, which then reduces its ability to play the role of peacemaker. Yeah. While many in Washington view China's emerging role as a mediator as a threat, the reality is that more of a stable Middle East where Iranians aren't at each other's throats and Saudis also benefits the United States. So I definitely think he is right. And the reason, though, that I'm trying to take a step back is, listen, all states, I, I am a real, like, all states are doing things for self-interested purposes. All, what the Chinese want is hegemony over East Asia and specifically to unite China and Taiwan. And everything that they are doing is setting the ground to try and make that happen. I think that would be a catastrophe for the U.S. economy and for U.S. relations in Asia, which I think is the most important region in the entire world. Hence why I'm broadly opposed to much of our aid, both to Ukraine and to our role across the Atlantic Ocean, because I think Europe is a dying society, slowing GDP, not going to be important nearly as much so as it is in 100 years as opposed to the Asia Pacific. And so everything that they are doing is basically trying to replicate what we did all through 1945 and onward, brokering these peace deals, you know, and recreating the type of diplomacy. Listen, we didn't do it for uh, for benevolent reasons either. We did it also to expand the American economic empire. That's the exact same reason that they want to do it. And so watching this, really what it is, is it shows to me how foolish the neolib view that the Biden administration, the Atlantic worship that they have had, both of NATO and of aid to Ukraine, and the tremendous danger and opening that they have left us to by abandoning all pretense of realism in any of this conflict. And so to watch this happen, I mean, multipolarity was not a joke. It actually led to a lot of wars across the world. I'm not necessarily saying that unipolarity doesn't have its downsides either, but we shouldn't uh, close our eyes as to what, like, a new, more unstable world is going to look like. And, you know, in this case, it can be positive, yeah. but it can also be very negative. Well, yeah. I mean, we've played ourselves yeah. is the bottom line. I think Trisha's part, point here mm -hmm. is really critical, that we are co-belligerents in terms of the Ukraine war. We're co-belligerents in terms of Yemen. So, of course, that complicates and disrupts our ability to serve as a credible peacemaker in either of these um, regions and in any of these conflicts. So what he ends with here is that Washington should avoid a scenario where regional players view America as an entrenched war maker and China as a flexible peacemaker. And that is exactly the direction that we're headed in right now. You know now. another thing that's so embarrassing? We have spent billions of hundreds of billions on Saudi Arabia. They did this in the full knowledge that it would make Biden and America look like a fool, yeah. like a second-rate power. What are we doing supporting these people? They're beyond their barbaric society. 
Why are we doing this for any positive reason? What are we getting out of it? We are selling point? them weapons while they flip us the bird. It's like, I, you know, in Iraq, you know, look, we spent, what, $5 trillion in Iraq. They turned around and signed a deal, an economic deal with the Chinese. It's like you can't even make this stuff up in terms of the level of support that we've provided to them. And they'll stab you in the front. They don't even care. And it's one of those where I can't blame them. I'd probably do the same thing if I had such a foolish person who was willing to give me so much money and then also not, uh, not actually bring any any of its real power to bear for our own interests and just basically t- taken for a ride in terms of lobbyists. So yeah. look, bottom line, this is a big deal. This is a very big deal. And if it does develop, it will represent a major sea change in international relations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Um, let's turn to some domestic politics here. Uh, the Democratic administration and other Democratic elites are getting very concerned about the public's negative impression of Vice President Kamala Harris Hmm. Um, because uh, there's an election coming up and uh, Joe Biden is expected to run with Kamala Harris on the ticket again. And they are realizing that the fact that you've got a dude who's the president of the United States who would be 86 years old by the end of the next term, well, that makes the vice presidential position even more important than it normally is. Because while, look, the vice president's always a heartbeat away from the presidency, when you're talking about the heartbeat of an 80-plus-year-old man, it becomes a a kind of a different deal in terms of the actuarial tables. So the uh, initial issues started between Democrats, sort of the Biden administration, Kamala Harris in particular, with some comments that Elizabeth Warren made. We actually covered them at the time Mm -hmm. on a radio show where she was asked whether Kamala Harris should be the vice presidential nominee. And she kind of hedged. Take a listen to that. You know, I I really want to defer to what makes Biden comfortable on his team. I've known Kamala for a long time. I like Kamala. I knew her back when she was when she was an attorney general and I was still uh, uh, teaching and we worked on the housing crisis together. So we go way back, but they need, they have to be a team and my sense is they are. I don't mean that by suggesting I think there are any problems. I think they are. So, oh, mm, yeah, okay. very interesting. She's like, okay. oh, they, they need to be a team. I'm not saying yeah. they're not a team, but just saying like he needs to be comfortable. Okay. okay. So um, Kamala was very upset about this. Apparently, uh-huh. put this next piece up on the screen. Uh, according to CNN, they have a long article here about the, the worries about Kamala Harris. Elizabeth Warren called Kamala twice to apologize after those comments she made on whether Biden should keep Harris as VP. Harris has not called back. But they go on in um, this article from CNN to talk about the fact that Democratic elites just want everybody to shut up about their concerns and complaints about Kamala Harris. They want commentators to stop talking about it. They want certainly this issue that came up with Elizabeth Warren. They want her to shut her mouth about it. What they say is that... um, It's the latest in a long string of snubs to a vice president who they say has never gotten the respect or support she deserves. They also contend, multiple Democratic leaders, they say contend, that if people don't start feeling more positive about the next person in the line of succession, they might turn away from the ticket entirely. So they're urging allies to stop the Harris pile-on, if only for Biden's sake or for Democrats' sake or the party's future. So basically... um, Keep your mouth shut. Don't be honest about the problems here because we're sticking with Kamala and it's really important that the American people are somehow persuaded 
that it would be all fine and good if she ended up as president of the United States. Good luck with that. She has such a thin skin for letting something like that get underneath. Like, what is wrong with you? And th look, I just think it underscores only people who are fundamentally weak act like this. People who have real holds over the party, real constituencies, real operations, and real chances of the presidency, they don't behave uh, in this way because they have a real power base. Because she is such a media creation, literally she is almost like a product of the conspiracy of silence. Everyone knows she's a terrible politician. Everyone knows that she is the least popular vice president in modern history, more so than Biden, and she doesn't even do anything. And yet, no one can say it, mostly because of racial politics and because she's a woman, because of basically media enforcers and then the weaponization of identity politics. It's, it's like the Hillary factor almost times 20. I never thought I would live to see a national politician who was worse than Hillary uh, come to the stage, but... We've been delivered. Yeah. That's what we've been delivered. Yeah, yeah, it is incredible. And I mean, listen, the the reason Kamala Harris is vice president of the United States, in spite of the fact that she couldn't even make it to the primaries to have a single voter cast a vote for her in 2020, is because James Clyburn basically said, you will pick a black woman. And, you know, she ends up That's on it. the list. Actually, Jill Biden did not want her there. Joe should have listened to Jill. You should. But- it was obvious to everyone that, you know, whatever you think of her record, which there's a lot to say about that as well, just on the level of political talent, she just didn't have it. Mm -hmm. And to try to deny that obvious reality to the American people, I mean, it's just not going to work. But this whole CNN article hand-wringing about the situation they find themselves in, it's funny because they're saying, oh, there's this, this pile on, on Kamala Harris. It's quite the opposite. There's been so little critical coverage of so Kamala true. Harris, to Absolutely be honest true. with you. I mean, she really has been protected from the beginning in a lot of ways. It's just that it's really apparent that, you know, this is going to be a political issue for Biden and the ticket uh, moving forward in 2024 and definitely impacts his electability. There's no doubt about it. Even if you think he's great and did a great job, you got to ask yourself who's next in line. And the answer is very troubling. And then, you know, if for whatever reason he didn't run or he was unable to run, then you have an even bigger problem because she's the one who you've said by making her vice president is next in line and they know they have a real political issue with her. So this all um, great clip to show you from The View, ladies discussing all of this, the CNN report, the Elizabeth Warren comments, et cetera. Their takes are just, just amazing. Take a listen. I feel like the Biden West Wing isn't necessarily setting her up for success by giving her things that she can go out and champion at a time when voters, I get the age, like age is not the most important thing, but you are, if you're electing someone who's an 82 year old in 2024, you need to believe that the vice president is able and willing the next day to be the president. And I think there's some concern about just the lack of a policy accomplishments that she's made as vice I'm, president. I'm surprised that there's concern. I think it has a lot to do with this. She's a black woman. Black women and get everything done. We've saved this country's democracy for She's obviously for amazing, but what specifically? But, well... Like, no, I mean, where shall, I, where, where shall I start? I mean, she was in the Senate, of but course. But no, I mean, as vice general, president, of course, vice she's president, highly. She's, she, the Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, 
she what was the face Pence of do? Roe v. Wade. I mean, <laughs> no, the list goes on and on. I'd like to ask you, what, what, did, what did Pence do? What did Pence no, do except, except, no, but, I mean, except put his lips firmly but on the there, butt but of Donald not. Trump and, and still is fighting a subpoena to testify against Trump? I mean, when Pence finds the cojones to do something, uh, then I think we okay, can wait, talk we about a vice presidential... It does feel a little... Uh, it's so funny because um, Alyssa Farah there, her critique, her like pushback yeah. on The View is like so mild and mellow. Like, well, I just think maybe like she could have done a little bit more. And then Sunny immediately pulls the Trump card of you're you're basically she's implying she's a racist, right? right? You're yeah, only good. saying that because she's a black woman. So that's number one. And then Alyssa's like, okay, well, just like tell me some policy right. accomplishments. She Where names, do I start? And she can pull up like one or two yeah, things. Yeah, she names. And then she names things that she had nothing to do with. Reduction Act, right. which Kamala Harris had zero to do with, and being the face of Roe versus Wade. Right. What is that? That means nothing. That absolutely means nothing. And also, Sagar, you yeah. were reminded from that yes. comment of one of our personal show favorite yeah. moments of the incredibly effective job that Kamala Harris did representing the administration's interests when it came to the issue of abortion. Take a listen to this. I think that, to be very honest with you, I, I do believe that we should have rightly believed, but we certainly believe that certain issues are just settled. Certain issues are just settled. Clearly we're not. No, that's right. And that's why I do believe that we are living, sadly, in um, real unsettled times. So that was her response to a question that's about- That's the face of words, Roe v. Wade. Hey, should yeah. have they maybe done something, the Democratic Party, when you had a supermajority right. under Obama, and that was the gobbledygook answer that she was able to offer? It's just such race-baiting BS to say that any criticism of her is because she is a black woman. If anything, the only reason that she is in a national office is because she is a black woman. That's if conflating criticism of that is outrageous when really they're the ones who played the, the race card from the beginning. So it's outrageous. Second, yeah, as you could see in that clip with Alyssa, she's very, very tepidly yeah. even pushing. Of course, they could literally, the only quote unquote right person they could find is somebody who's like kissing the ass of CNN, uh, has denounced Trump at every turn. And look, I'm not saying that that isn't a valid point, but I'm saying like that does not represent conservatism in the United States literally in any way. I, I don't also, even also claim to do that, but I'm saying that is literally what her job is supposed I, to be on. I also like yeah. how when Sonny struggles to articulate what Kamala has provided right. in the office of the vice presidency. The next rhetorical trick she pulls is mm -hmm. going, well, what about Mike Pence? Right. Because you, she knows that the view audience will, like that's an easy rhetorical victory for her to be like, and Mike Pence was out there kissing Donald Trump's butt. And it's like, okay, true. What does that have to do with Kamala Harris? But you know, she knows that that's a good way to get the audience on her side since she's struggling to actually defend her record in office. And look, let's be honest, vice presidents, you know, they don't typically do a lot. They're, Biden was actually more impactful when he was vice president because he had all those relationships with the Senate. Obama hated doing like that kind of retail politics. Joe Biden obviously loves doing that kind of retail politics. So you could actually make a case. Okay, he actually mattered in terms of trying to work with Republicans, strike a deal, etc. Um, with Kamala, you know, the thing that you would hope for with her is that she would be a competent spokesperson 
in these various interests in representing the administration and their positions. That's really the one job she actually has as vice president. And it happens to be a job that she is incredibly poorly suited to because she's just not quick on her feet in these interviews. She's always trying to, she's, she's, always trying to just like recite what was in the briefing book without having actually spent any time with the mm-hmm. briefing book. Marshall always makes the point she's really trying to like West Wing it yeah. and say something profound every time when really you should just be like answering the question directly and straight. Right. So anyway, you know, they want, and there, it went on with, um, what's her name, Anna Navarro, yes. was like, I don't know what's wrong with Democrats. They just need to be quiet about this criticism because you're giving Republicans talking points, which also completely drives me crazy because- you can't just lie to people and deny reality because you're terrified about what Republicans might say. Republicans already have their, they're going to have talking points no matter what you do. So you only add, undermine your own credibility when you are straightforward with the American people about what you actually think. There's a phrase I just remembered called the biggest tree of low expectations. Yes. And I think that is really what's happening here is that we have such low expectations of her that it's literally bigoted. So that you're conflating the criticism when what we really expect is a competent vice president and that's it. So to say that we're not allowed to criticize her or the criticism of her for her bad, obviously bad performance is in some way racial is itself injecting something that has nothing to do with her actual job performance. Well, I have a perfect example for you. After Hillary Clinton lost against Donald Trump, there were a lot of people who said it was because of sexism. Yes, yeah, Country was too sexist to elect a female president, and that is an incredibly, I mean, listen, I'm not denying the reality of racism or sexism. Far from it. But when that is the narrative that you go with, when there were so many other obvious failings of Hillary Clinton, well, what does that tell Democratic voters the next time around? And this came up in the runs of people like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and others. You know, I really might like you or I might like your policy, but I my number one priority is electability. And I was just told with Hillary Clinton that a woman can't win. So you end up when that's your only analysis and when you throw it up as a smokescreen for every single thing, even when there are clearly other obvious issues going on, what you're doing is you're telling other young women or other young black women that they don't have a chance. And you're telling voters that they shouldn't back these people in primaries because ultimately the electorate is too racist and too sexist for them to have a shot. So if you care about winning, I guess you just got to stick with the old white guys. Very good point. It really is. Um, hopeful note, though, in terms of uh, the media. So apparently the American public, not Democrats, not Republicans, not independents, bought the media spin with regard to the origins of the pandemic. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. This is really quite I love fascinating. I love this is an Economist YouGov poll. They found that uh, they asked people, OK, what do you think? Was uh, COVID origin natural or was it a lab leak? 66 percent supermajority of Americans said they lean toward lab leak. That includes 54% of Democrats, so a majority of Democrats, versus only 25% who say they lean towards natural. The other 21% say they're not sure. So 54% of Democrats say lean lab leak, 62% of independents, and 86% of Republicans. So there are some partisan differences there, which you would expect. But Even among Democrats, which, you know, almost entirely consume news media that for years was telling them not only was Lab Leak wrong, definitively wrong, but it was also racist to even consider it, they didn't really listen to their media purveyors of choice 
And I find that to be an incredibly beautiful and encouraging thing, ultimately. Oh, I love this. This is kind of like the Kennedy assassination thing. Yeah. Where everyone's like, here's the official story, all of that. And by 1975, they're like, yeah, I just don't believe a literal word of what <laughs> I think it was a complete conspiracy. And you know what the crazy part when you dig into this is many Democrats even are willing to buy that it was a deliberate leak of the virus. Some 35% say it was actually deliberately leaked in some sort of bioweapon. And so Jeez. that is, you are seeing the level of suspicion that Americans have here about whether COVID was leaked from the lab and whether even it was intentionally leaked from the lab. So I think that that just really encapsulates everything where you can have as much media propaganda as you want. Americans are not stupid. It's been almost two and a half years now that polling has indicated that at least half of the country has always thought this was the lab leak. It just turns out that half is not was never represented on television. And now you have a supermajority. People, it's like the John Stewart bit. He's like, you're telling me that the lab where they happen to study this is the place where the pandemic happened. It's common sense, people. It's just straight up common sense. All the spin, all the actually four intel agencies would have nothing to do with labs, all disagree. They're not buying any of this crap. They know what's true and they know what's not. All you had to lay, do is lay out the circumstantial case and then the reams of evidence on top of that and then the testimony of the former CDC director and then all of the cover-up and it just confirms everything that they knew from day one. Yeah. Um, sometimes ordinary people have a lot more common sense than these sometimes. supposed <laughs> experts and elites that get trotted out on cable news. But, you know, it's just really encouraging to see a, a level of skepticism mm-hmm. Even among, you know, sort of the Democratic base and liberals who had their own ideas about this, even as, um, you know, all of their media outlets were pushing one particular narrative. And even as they're, you know, someone who they could still consider like a hero of the pandemic continues to be on the other side of the debate. They're still able to look at it and be like, you know what, I'm taking off my partisan hat. I'm taking off my like I love Fauci T-shirt and I am going with what is like common sense to me and what appears to be the most likely explanation here. It's also, in my view, uh, another sign of the decline in trust, much deserved Mm -hmm. decline in trust among the, you know, traditional mainstream corporate press. I think that is also a really good thing because, you know, if you are going to disrupt the status quo in any meaningful way, you're going to need a bulk of the population to be free thinking and to reject the lines that they are, or at least to question the lines that are being pushed to them from mainstream press. So I see that as nothing but a positive development. Absolutely. My only fear with this is, you know, with a lot of these Democrats, because if you also were to be like, well, what do you think of Fauci? They're like very positively. And unfortunately, I think that the explanation for lab leak and for the cover-up is deeply convoluted. As much as I would love for it not to be, it's difficult to convey to someone who is not already deeply skeptical. Now, millions of people are. They watch this show. We can see that um, in terms of the level of interest. But imagine you got to explain to a layman, EcoHealth Alliance and back coronavirus research gain a function. That is the disconnect where it's it's like – 
it's kind of like Iraq. Everyone's like, well, Bush lied about WMD. And it's like, yeah, that is broadly true. But then the actual specifics of it to try and explain the mechanics of Joseph Wilson and your yellow cake and Valerie Plume. And then that was its own scandal. And it's, it just starts to become too much and people's eyes glaze over. And ultimately they rely on that because that's the way that they never actually get held accountable for these broad crimes, which are immense and which are terrible. So I just wish and hope that if we can try and start a campaign to really get people to get fully sped up on the actual details of this, there would be even more of a level of outrage. And there might actually be some accountability too. And, and look, let's say, let's put Fauci aside. I don't think he'll ever go to jail, even though I think he should. Let's at least ban and put new uh, new limitations on gain yeah. of function. Like that would be the ultimate victory. At this I don't point. think you need a lot of yeah. details and like intimate Maybe. knowledge of the original conference call yeah. and the letter and how it all went down. To just get on a really basic level, this research caused a pandemic. We should curb this research mm-hmm. or likely or potentially caused a pandemic um, for the YouTube misinformation censors. So maybe we should do about that. Like that's a really simple and straightforward and common sense direction that I think people would be very uh, and I think are very receptive to. Yeah, yeah I think that's well said. All right, Ty, what are you looking at? Well, if you're like me, you're probably incredibly annoyed at the proliferation on Twitter, Instagram, and presumably on TikTok of tips on how to get rich. Seemingly every person who has ever started a business is out there with threads on how to optimize your taxes, how to get into the storage business, how to start a drop shipping company, <laughs> how to maximize your NFTs, how to get into REITs. I could literally go on forever. Much of this is a scam, but clearly the supply is there to meet the demand. At the heart of these schemes is the idea that you can, through sheer force of will, become rich and financially free in this country. And it is certainly true to a limited extent. In fact, I was stunned at a recent New York Times survey of income tax data that showed a massive portion of the people who make over $1.58 million a year in this country are car dealers and mechanic shop owners. Small business owners very much have the chance at striking it modestly rich in this country. In many ways, that is the American dream. But to really strike it rich, to really become a whale, generational wealth, an entirely different skill set is now required. And unfortunately, it has almost nothing to do with actually creating value for anyone in America. I couldn't help but be struck in watching this, everything go down at Silicon Valley Bank. We have executives at this bank who cashed out millions of dollars in their own stock before the collapse. They gave themselves bonuses hours before the feds took it over and they were insolvent. It hit me that these thread posters, they've got it all wrong. The way to really become rich in America is apparently start a regional bank, make dumb bets and gambles, run your business badly, pay yourself a bonus, then have the government backstop your customer deposits while you laugh all the way to Aspen. Really consider the precedent that we have set, which we expounded on yesterday. All cash deposits in all banks are now backstopped by the government. Okay, but then why do these bank executives get to use our hard-earned money to trade, loan out, to bet on investments when they pay us fractions of the penny on the dollar in interest and paying themselves big bonuses? Now, I have long said to some controversy, we would be better off if people became billionaires in this country the way that Elon Musk and Bezos did, because at least that requires creating world-changing companies. Today, it almost has nothing to do with that. Consider the Forbes billionaire list and the newest additions that are U.S. citizens. 50, as of April of 2022, were added to the list. What do you think the single most common occupation of these 
these new additions was. To a T, almost every single one of them was in finance, including, and I'm not joking, who they shouted out, Gary Wang, <laughs> vice president of FTX. I guess he's no longer on the list. But the rest of them, the most common occupation of these new billionaires was almost all the same some derivative of finance, private equity, fintech, investment banking, venture capital. Of the additions was Bill Gates' ex-wife after her divorce settlement. The rest were a sprinkling of genuine entrepreneurs and then some real estate guys who were effectively as big sharks as the financiers. In many ways, the industrialists like Musk and Bezos that we focus on having the biggest fortune, it misses the fact that the most common way today to become filthy rich is not to start anything. It's financial engineering, shorting stocks, buying companies, gutting them, offshoring, selling for parts, squeezing stock value, or in the case of the XTX, FTX guy, being a literal fraudster. And by the way, that was just the new billionaires list. A comprehensive review of the Forbes 400 list found that the most common occupation in developed nations for billionaires is finance. And if you lower the threshold down to mere multimillionaires, it remains just as common. Basically, above small business owners, the only real way to get really rich in this country is to get some way involved in the financial industry. If you compare this to other countries, we are the standout dramatically. Chinese billionaires and Indian billionaires, Russian billionaires, they are disproportionately concentrated in manufacturing, retail, textile, and industry. Now granted, many of them are oligarchs with connections to the state, but the point stands that their raw wealth is creation coming from hard assets. Ours is just games on a spreadsheet. Yes, I know I am simplifying this significantly. No, I am not saying these businesses have no place whatsoever in our economy. But do you really believe that it should be number one? Worse, seemingly our entire tax code is actually geared around protecting this very type of wealth. Once you have generated significant net worth, your effective dr tax rate drops dramatically. Even amongst billionaires, your ability to avoid income tax is on a graduated scale. No single group of American billionaires enjoys more benefits than those in finance, including, but not limited to, capital gains taxes, the carried interest loophole, and the ability to borrow against the value of stock to effectively have zero income. Take financial billionaires like Michael Bloomberg and Warren Buffett, for example. Both have an effective lifetime tax rate of less than 1.5%. Buffett's is actually at 0.1%. It is difficult to comprehend how much the entire system is designed, almost entirely for their benefit. Meanwhile, if you're one of those successful small businesses owners that I mentioned, even with all the depreciation in the world, you are likely paying one of the highest effective tax rates in the United States. Maybe it's just me, but that's ass backwards. Businesses that are parts of the community are effectively penalized for earning cash, while the people who ostensibly manage that cash for you take leverage bets on the market, they make a killing and they pay nothing. I already know nothing is gonna change in the immediate term. But it is important to keep this in your mind, what things really should look like, should the time ever come that we can ever actually do something about this. You know, this is a point, Crystal, I've, I've always tried to make, and I just wanted to revisit it. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, guys, as we've been covering here, when things got dicey for wealthy venture capitalists, their friends, and their portfolio companies, the government leapt into action. After Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, it only took the government a single weekend to guarantee 
all depositors would be made 100% whole, but that was really just the start. They also opened up an entirely new lending facility to make sure that all banks have liquidity and will even allow banks to use as collateral for those cheap loans assets that have lost billions in value. Now, these actions not only benefit Silicon Valley bank depositors and signature bank depositors, but the entire banking system. Every bank executive and shareholder with a shaky balance sheet just got a massive bailout. Every wealthy person in America with more than $250,000 in the bank, they just got a guarantee that all their deposits are safe, even though their institutions did not pay enough insurance to actually cover all of those deposits. All banks are now effectively too big to fail, and all deposits are now effectively insured. And as much as they want to claim this has no impact on the American taxpayer, we're the ones who are backstopping this new revolutionary banking status quo. Even if you just consider one piece of the bailout, the Fed's decision to allow banks to borrow against negative collateral value, this amounts to many billions of dollars in value conferred to one sector of the economy from the U.S. government. Now, I cannot help but contrast this shock and awe response from the federal government with a response to another crisis that we have spent a lot of time covering here, the Norfolk Southern train catastrophe in East Palestine, Ohio. Both crashes at core were created by corporate greed and political capture. Case of Silicon Valley Bank, their CEO successfully argued for a light regulatory touch, exempting the bank from stress tests that might have kept it from going belly up. 17 Democrats joined with 50 Republicans to usher these changes through Congress during the Trump administration. Now, in the case of Norfolk Southern, railroad interests had their way with the Obama administration when they successfully limited the scope of new safety regs. The Trump administration went even further, rolling back several of those Obama-era provisions, and the Biden administration maintained the status quo and then sided with the rail bosses over their workers on safety and on working conditions. But in one situation, the victims were wealthy and well-connected. In the other, the victims were working-class people in a part of the country that the fancy people abandoned a long time ago. Now, I'm not saying the train crash and the bank crash are 100% analogous. That'd be ridiculous. One big and important difference is that in the case of SVB, there was a possibility of financial contagion spreading to banks across the country. I tend to think these fears were a bit overblown, but it was certainly a real possibility, especially with a bunch of influential people running around hair on fire, basically willing one into existence. Now, with the Norfolk Southern train derailment, the fact of this one derailment was not going to trigger an onslaught of derailments. There was no contagion risk. So it is different in that it was not going to trigger cascading effects. Although, if you look at the safety stats, we already have a nationwide epidemic of train derailments, which should be treated as a crisis. But both crashes have to do with the lives and the livelihoods of American citizens. In evaluating the responses, what you come away with is a pretty clear message about who our government is set up to serve. Who gets a bailout? And who gets a raft of excuses for why we can't do anything? Who gets socialism? And who gets that good old-fashioned rugged individualism? So let's do a little thought experiment. What would it actually look like if East Palestine, Ohio, got the Silicon Valley treatment? The first critical aspect of the government response to Silicon Valley was speed. It took mere days to marshal a major response and announce groundbreaking new policy, leaving depositors concerned about these bank accounts for only a single weekend. On the other hand, the Norfolk Southern train derailed on February 3rd. It has been six weeks now since that happened, and still the community is lacking in the most basic of answers. Just last week, the EPA finally ordered soil to be tested for toxic dioxins, a glaring oversight given the risk of these chemicals and concerns of health experts. And outrageously, that testing 
is being conducted by Norfolk Southern itself, the very company that caused the catastrophe and which has every incentive to cover up potential problems. I have zero doubt that a wealthy community would have expected and received full air, water, and soil testing conducted immediately before anyone was told that it was safe for them to come home. Now with Silicon Valley Bank, a key concern was the ability of business owners who had accounts at the bank to continue their operations and not miss a payroll. The government immediately stepped in to guarantee that those depositors would be made 100% whole. What would it look like for East Palestine residents to be made 100% whole? Well, they may not have owned fancy tech startups, but plenty had small businesses, which have undoubtedly now been destroyed by the fact that their town has become synonymous with a massive industrial accident. Their home values have been decimated overnight. Any idea that perhaps they should move out of a potentially toxic town is being crushed by the fact that whatever they sunk into building wealth via home ownership has now been completely wiped out. Medical bills are mounting for some who are continuing to report symptoms ranging from dizziness to skin rashes to vomiting blood. Making East Palestine 100% would involve a cash infusion to make up the losses of their assets from homes to businesses, funds to relocate if they desire to do so. It would mean a Medicare for all guarantee that would eliminate current and future medical bills. By the way, there's a provision in Obamacare that could be invoked to secure universal health care for this town. It just requires the government to admit there is a public emergency, something they are ultimately loath to do. Even this would not make the residents of the town 100% whole when you consider the stress and potential health impacts and splintering of a deeply rooted community, but at least it would be a start. The government's actions with regard to Silicon Valley Bank, they went far beyond just that one bank. They created a whole new program in an attempt to make sure no other banks or depositors suffered any losses. What would this look like in the case of industrial accidents like what happened in East Palestine? It would mean expanding any programs that benefited that one Ohio community to cover any community impacted by a derailment or a chemical spill. It would mean creating dedicated mechanisms like what exists within the Fed where funding can go out immediately without having to wait around for Congress to get their act together, which they never do. And that's really the key difference between banks and ordinary people. We have an elaborate architecture in place that can spring into action the instant there is a whiff of trouble for big business and for banks. But all of the mechanisms which are meant to help and protect ordinary people, they are decrepit or inadequate, non-existent or broken. So instead of an actual government response to suffering, you get Pete Buttigieg writing a strongly worded letter to rail bosses and Trump flying in to hand out branded water bottles and McChicken sandwiches. Imagine if in response to these bank failures, Janet Yellen just wrote a letter asking the banking industry to please do better, and Obama flew to California to hand out copies of his latest Netflix series or something like that. Now, there is one unfortunate commonality between these two crashes. Neither incident is likely to lead to the regulatory reform, which would prevent future similar crises from recurring. With Silicon Valley, the government is treating the symptoms. With East Palestine, the government is telling suffering residents that the symptoms are all in their heads. In neither case, is Congress likely to actually tackle prevention? Because that would require taking industry head on, which is hard, versus giving them balance, which is so easy. All I'm saying to the masters of the universe who converted from Ayn Rand to Marx in the course of 48 hours is that your socialism for the rich would go down a whole lot easier if you came through with a little bit of socialism for the rest of the country when they really, really need it. And I have been struck by the contrast and if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Matt Taibbi went scorched earth in Congress, and Congress did their best to try to discredit him. So he's joining us now. We're very excited to welcome him back to the show. Matt Taibbi, so-called journalist, welcome back. It's great to see you. <laughs> How's it going, Simon, Crystal? 
Good oh, it's you. great, man. Uh, great we we were absolutely outraged on your behalf, uh, even though you handled yourself I with great aplomb. I saw that. I will say, uh, yeah. I hope I hope it helped out, and I'm sure many of our audience was very much with you, Matt. We wanted to just have you on to talk about the actual content of what you were testifying before in Congress, because apparently many of these Democratic members were not actually interested in that. Wow, that's new. I'm not even sure I'm prepared for this interview because uh, <laughs> I haven't had one of those. Um, no, the content is is uh, I would say shocking. You know, the the Twitter files originally, when we did the first couple of threads on them, they seemed like it was a pretty limited topic that you know we were looking first at the Hunter Biden story. I was hoping to answer a pretty small question about whether or not. Um, the DHS or the FBI was in any way contacting these companies with recommendations. And then about, I would say, a month into the process, we discovered that not only was there a very formal system of transmitting, sort of mass transmitting those requests, but that there was a deeper layer of it where the government was connected to all these NGOs that were also sending um, huge numbers of requests to these companies. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a very this serious, I think, deep problem, and I wish we had gotten an opportunity to talk about it more. Yes. Well, it's one of these, and it's, there's one of many issues where the um, partisan coding of it, first of all, is bizarre, but also it completely misses the point. Because no one has argued oh, this only happens under Democratic administrations. No, uh, to the contrary. I mean, a lot of what you revealed was happening during the Trump administration. So it speaks to a deeper collaboration between what some might call the deep state and these incredibly powerful uh, tech companies. Can you just help people understand what you find as a journalist and as an American citizen so troubling about some of these interactions? Well, the First Amendment expressly prohibits the government from getting involved in barring speech. Um, and what we see here is they're trying to do an end around um, in a number of ways. Uh, first, by sending very carefully worded letters to these companies, you know, for your consideration only, um, we believe mm. that that these accounts may violate your terms of service, um, or they will they will send something like you know of of course uh, you will only remove accounts at your own sole discretion. But you know here's a list of three thousand accounts that we think um, are foreign threat actors or potential foreign threat actors, right? Right. Uh, so so that's deeply troubling. But Crystal, to your point. You know, the, one of the people that I talked to about this is uh, had a, a really interesting way to describe this phenomenon, saying that it was counterterrorism and counterpopulism, because what we had was the war on terror machinery kind of ran out of gas after the ISIS problems started to recede, and the money still needed to be spent, so mm. they just reconfigured the mission to anti-disinformation. And the problem with that is that the, the reason the Republicans are more interested in that is that in the United States, the bigger threat to the establishment populism-wise is the right wing. But you, in the Twitter files, you see they're very worried about the left in Europe, in Africa, in South America. Um, so I think that's a misconception. As, as you say, the, 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 the right-left coding of this has, has been an obstacle. 
Yeah, it's really troubling. And one of the things that I was driven mad by was the also partisan coding in the hearing itself, where they both wanted to say censorship wasn't happening and that when it was, it was good. So they were like, no, 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 actually, there's a real bias here in protecting it. And so the censorship, it wasn't happening as Taibbi was saying it was, but when it did happen, it was in the defense, quote unquote, really of like good information and reality, it's the right wing or whatever. And taking the partisan coding out of it. I mean, one of the things that you unveiled here with the Twitter files was how much time and man hours are spent on censoring absolute bullshit, as in like <laughs> like small accounts with no following that are supposedly either rush, spreading disinformation. Making some bad joke. And we're like, how are, is it your job to go through and comb through six follower accounts and then flag it and try to get those taken down? Was there any interest in that, apparently, from any of these people at the hearing? No, and and that's that's an in- interesting point because uh, you know there's satire is one of the big problems for AI. Um, it doesn't know how to handle things that are jokes clearly to a human being, but a computer doesn't understand that. So all it sees, for instance, is that there there is a an account. Um, Peter Douche, I think is what he calls himself. Uh, And he was making these sort of fake Biden videos where the tongue was really long and it was clearly a joke. But there was this whole back and forth between like the, uh, you know, the Democratic Party or the campaign representative and a Twitter's government liaison about whether or not they should ban this. And this is taking up lots and lots of time. Stuff like this is all over the Twitter files, um, you know, jokes by uh, who is it? Mike Huckabee made a joke. Um, oh, I guess I should get my dead parents to vote now, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's a joke, clearly, right? I mean, look, maybe he's a jerk to, to say it, right. but uh, but they they had a long discussion about it. They they sort of pre gave him a strike for for saying that. And that is a huge part of the problem, too, is that they're, they're trying to apply machine learning to human conversation and, and you can't do it, really. Yeah. And that's going to be, you know, continue to be a really important problem, um, you know, that I wish we were thinking harder about as we move forward. You know, have you thought much about solutions? Because um, I think a lot of folks on the right, like they kind of put their faith in Elon that this would be like free speech panacea once he took over the platform. I mean, it's this sort of libertarian view, right? Of like, oh, if we have a new startup that is like Twitter but different, or if we have the right, you know, free pro free speech billionaire owner of Twitter, then maybe things will be different. But ultimately, the incentive structure is still the same. They're still really controlled by what advertisers are going to be comfortable with in terms of their speech valence. So um, have you thought about what some more workable, intelligent solutions might look like? Yeah, I mean, those are those are lofty questions. They're, they're very, very difficult. I, I would say my, my primary, con- uh, my first concern is that we get the government out of the business of organizing some kind of pan- platform uh, censorship processing system because there's some evidence that they've already done that uh, and created a, a, a processing system that works between the companies um, and that is publicly funded. So that that would be very troubling if that existed. Uh, the, the, I think the libertarian point of view on this that, that has a little bit of merit in my point of view um, is this idea that if, if there was no organized government system, 
then they would at least compete and there would be some platforms that would do that less than others maybe, right? Um, and you wouldn't have this uh, universal cooperation, which is what we saw in, in the Twitter files. However, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the incentives are what they are. People are always going to do this if they have the power to do it. And that's a problem because distribution is now so concentrated that even, you know, shows like yours, writing like mine, even though it's on email, like it's always going to be subject to these mm -hmm. these distributors. Yeah. And that was one where I, you know, I, I had to bring this up. But one of the worst parts to me was when Debbie Wasserman Schultz attacked you when you <laughs> like from the idea that you might have made money by doing your job um, when they have no questions about, you know, corporate media, whenever they get aligned with some major advertiser and they happen to take that line. Oh, that's totally fine. But can you just talk about uh, why I think at least it was an it was a big moment for independent journalism, regardless of really what the attack was or not, to have these sitting up there, to have these revelations, to be at the center of the story, and even for the uh, people in Congress to kind of show their true colors on this. You know, in some ways, uh, it was a disgusting attack. But like I said, actually in our video defending you, I was like, you know, this just shows you that they have to attack the uh, character whenever they can't actually attack the content. So to me, it was almost like a we've arrived time moment. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. We, we, we found a flow chart that the um, Stanford Internet Observatory put out that uh, talked about all the different stakeholders in the content review process. And it was, it was something like government, companies, NGOs, and media. And it showed all the, the content flowing back and forth, reports both going to media and from media to these NGOs. But what that showed is that they view the media, especially you know, the, the, the traditional corporate media as part of the system, which makes them inherently trustworthy, which I think is why uh, people, it was all independent journalists were chosen to do this project mm -hmm. because there's an inherent trust problem now with, with the corporate press. Um, so look, the press is, is supposed to adopt a separate uh, adversarial posture to all of these institutions. And, it, and if they're viewed as partners, they, they can't be trusted. And so I, I think that was an important point. I think that's one of the main things that this project, I hope, has achieved. Oh, I hope so, too. Uh, as we always say, go ahead and support Matt's work. We got a link down in the description. Really appreciate you joining us and uh, breaking it down. I know it was an annoying moment, I'm sure, but <laughs> overall, I think it worked out to your benefit. Thanks so much, Saga Crystal. Yeah. Take care. Great, Great to see you, Matt. Good to see you. Thank you guys so much for watching. Really appreciate it. As always, uh, if you can, we got the new Spotify full show out there. I know a lot of people are really loving that. Just for premium members, you can subscribe, breakingpoints.com, support the show, get the full show on Spotify, video, audio, all at the same time. People are absolutely loving it. So enjoy, people. Uh, we'll, we'll see you guys on Thursday. We got a great CounterPoints show for you guys tomorrow. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.